Welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions, hosted by Bruce Duff, author of The Smell of Death, musician, producer, and artist manager. The conversations are recorded at Tone Duff Studio in Hollywood, California, and are a feature of Rare Bird Radio. All right, welcome to Tone Duff Session number... 27? Oh my god, I gotta stop doing this. Today, we're with the three wonderful young ladies uh, who have, uh, <laughs> watch that face, uh, who have amazing stories to tell, and you're gonna hear them. Uh, I would like to introduce Stacy Russo, Stella, and Joanna Went. Ladies, say hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Sunday afternoon in the park and everything. <laughs> Thanks so, so much. You guys are all involved and part of a book known as We Were Going to Change the World. And uh, Stacy, you put this together. It's quite an accomplishment. Thank uh, you. I believe you just did a reading from it yesterday, right? Am I right? Um, we had an event last night at Book Show in Highland Park, and Stella was there. And yeah. I think um, about six of the women from the book came out, too. Did so, they read? Um, it was more of a panel discussion, kind oh, of in, informal, and then we had a signing for anybody who was there to get their book signed by like seven people, which who, is kind of cool. Who was cool. there? Um, besides Stella, um, Kira was there, um, Laura Beth Bachman was there, um, Kirsten Bruce, who's in the book, um, a woman named Angelita, who's in the book. Um, let me see, Kate Garcia and Kathy Rogers. Hopefully I've captured everybody okay, who was there. That's pretty good. But going from memory, <laughs> uh, I'm not a lot of sleep. <laughs> I got you. Uh, I really enjoyed Kira's chapter. I thought it was one of the uh, most interesting ones, especially the way she sort of uh, delineated her being in bands with women and then men. Yes. Uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. Like yeah. she, she felt that men were more like okay, this is a job, it might suck a little bit, but let's bang it out and then we're done. Whereas women would have more things that caused conflict with yes. just getting rehearsal together and stuff like that. Yes. Which I had never thought of. And I've, I've been in plenty of bands with women and never really thought much about it. They seem like yeah. everybody um, else. One thing about the interviews, I of course let every woman tell her story. Um, Kira's story is a little different in that respect because some of the other women, I think, um, Teresa and Alice Bag have had a different experience when it comes to being in bands with women. They actually prefer that, I think, they commented on. So Kira's story was different. Um, Kira's actually the first woman I interviewed for the book because I was a huge Black Flag fan. It's one of my favorite bands growing up, so she was the first one I reached out to to interview. Yeah, Alice is still around, has a book out. Doing yes, well. yeah. Uh, the McDonald brothers told me when they were teenagers, one of their very first shows was uh, The Bags, mm -hmm. and that Alice and Pat got in a fight on stage, and they were, they were scared <laughs> of these women. Well, you got to get out of here. These kids are nuts. Uh, like, apparently, Alice just said, don't you ever do that again, bitch, right in front, like on stage. Show's going. Yeah. Who and knows what it was. They yeah. went to school together. Well, sometimes they've known each other a long time. Sometimes that's when it gets the most harsh. So uh, let's start at the beginning. What prompted you to put this together? What was the idea, and how did you go about making it happen? Yeah, so I grew up in the punk rock scene of the '80s, so I'm on the younger spectrum of a lot of the women in the book, and. Um, 
I went to an oral history workshop in San Francisco about six years ago, and it was how to do an oral history project, but I did not have this project in mind at all at the time. I was thinking more of it as what I could do with students maybe. I'm a librarian and a professor at Santa Ana College, so I thought, what could I do with students maybe in terms of an oral history, you know? But I ended up leaving the workshop, and I thought, I know what I want to do. <laughs> I want to interview other women like me who are now in their 40s, 50s, 60s or older who were somehow involved in the punk rock scene in Southern California. Um, it was a huge influence on my life in terms of even just how I live my daily life really still. Um, politically, socially, how I feel about people, the whole um, experimentation and do-it-yourself culture of it. So all of that is um, still a huge impact on, on how I live. So I set out to interview women who um, were part of the scene in the 70s or 80s and to find out how were they involved, what did they do, why were they involved, um, and did it influence their life in any ways. So I um, reached the women in different ways. So some of the women, such as Stella and Johanna, I contacted, so I reached out to them. A lot of the women found out about the project from flyers I put around oh, okay. and also um, through Facebook. And I was thinking I was going to have to do something like an ad in the LA Weekly, and I'm so glad I didn't because I already had so many people contacting me just from social media and the project, you know, getting around that way. So, um, so the majority of the women in the book reached out to me and wanted to be part of the project, and then about maybe a third are women I reached out to. Most of the um, more well-known women are the ones that I sent an email to, and thankfully, um, all except one person wanted to do it, so I was very happy about that, and that's what happened. <laughs> um, and so you knew about a third of these people in advance? I didn't know anybody. Um, only one woman in the book did I know before the project. Oh, really? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, one woman in the book, Rini, is actually my friend I grew up with. Um, but I'm pretty sure that, just kind of thinking right now, everybody else, I met them for the first time when I interviewed them. And so, so the uh, I'm guessing the the way you actually did it would be an interview and then you cut that together. Uh, just yeah. edit it together to be like someone telling their own story. Yeah, so I followed the format of that organization I mentioned, Voice of Witness, and um, I wanted to keep my voice as the interviewer out of it as much as possible so that when someone's reading through the stories, they can hopefully hear each woman's voice clearly coming through to them. So um, I did meet most of the women in person in their homes and did the interview that way. A few of them were over the phone if they didn't live around here. And then I sent to each woman her interview after it was transcribed. Um, I sent to them what I wanted to publish so they had a chance if they wanted to, to edit it. Oh, I wanted okay. them to be comfortable with what was going to be published. Some of the women didn't want to look at it. They said, just go ahead, it's fine. Um, some had changes, but that was just really important to me is that they were okay with their story, and if they wanted to, they could revise it. Um, and we just went from there. Uh, and how did you guys, uh, you guys getting involved? Um, was it pretty straightforward for you? I mean, just tell your story. <laughs> your story is, is really quite compelling. I mean, it's, 
I, I didn't know any of that stuff. And just from all the way from Seattle, raising your brother and sister, you know, getting involved in performance art way before punk rock. I made all that up. Uh, well, you know, well, that's part of the performance. Good for you. No, I, I applaud that. I didn't. I know. You know, fill us in a little bit for people who haven't read the book yet, uh, Joanna, sort of like how you get in, how where you intersect with punk rock, if you can explain that in some way. Well, technically, I was not, ex I mean, performance artist, not really a punk rocker. And um, I just happened to be lucky to kind of fit into that scene and really be embraced by that scene, you know, by the audiences of that scene. And I think it was because of um, my work appealed, you know, to that audience because you could say it's a little bit aggressive and it was, you know, fast moving and loud and uh, it just, it just worked. You know, it, it worked. I um, I remember I was doing, you know, theater th things. It wasn't exactly theater, but I would try to perform in theaters. I performed in, like, coffee houses or any place that I could perform. You were also doing street performances as yeah, well, right? Yeah, a long time. But, yeah, but, um, I w you know, I didn't fit into those places. And so I started hanging out at the clubs and seeing the music, and I'm going, oh, no, no. You know, because I'd wanted a musician for a long time to start playing, and I talked this guy into coming down, you know, to the Hong Kong with me and doing this show. And I, you know, I was down there like begging, begging that guy. It was Barry, uh, Barry Seidel, I think, was running that club at that time, the Hong Kong Cafe. And I just was like begging him, please let me on. Look here, I have all these pictures of all this stuff that I did. And my pictures were pretty exciting, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that, you <laughs> know, crazy looking. And so he said, okay, okay. And so he let me, you know, he put me on a bill and I showed up with this drummer who was late. I didn't show up with him, but he showed up late. And then Zev was there. And then it was like, Zev goes, I'm gonna be your drummer from now on. That guy's like, he's no good, you know. And then that was it. And then putting the whole band together around that with Mark. Yes, with Mark Wheaton, absolutely. Well, you know, Zev took off. He took off for Europe. And he just decided he didn't want to be in Hollywood or San Francisco anymore. He wanted to go to Europe. And, and he had sort of a career in industrial music, right, on his own? He's Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, no. Zev was huge. Oh, I mean, yeah. Zev was huge in San Francisco. And he's the one who introduced me to all the people that I know in San Francisco. You know, Mark Pauline from SRL. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and Dirk Dirksen. He got sure. me, you know, booked in the shows. You know, I would first, I performed, like, on the same bill with Zev, and then he would play for, he would play, and then he would play for me, too. And, um, yeah, then he decided he wanted to go live in Amsterdam. Um, so he left town, and I had met Mark, you know, from Chinos Comitas up in Seattle. I'm from Seattle, mm -hmm. so uh, there's that whole Seattle scene up there. So um, right around the time Chinos Comitas were kind of, you know, splitting up, and it all worked out. His brother Brock played for me for a couple shows that, that Zev wasn't at, and then all of a sudden, like, you know, brought Mark on, and then we just hit it off. We're still, you know, we're still working together. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. You're still working together. Can we see you doing things live in this state? Where do you play? Does stuff still happen? 
I play at my house in my bathroom. <laughs> I mean, are you planning on doing any, anything live? Uh, any Joanna Went shows coming up? I don't know. My life has kind of been in transition. I'm working on moving to Ventura, and I'm thinking, you know, I really miss performing. I don't know where I would perform, you know, because more and more I started performing at art spaces as opposed to clubs, uh -huh. you know. Uh, I, the thing I really miss is clubs. I guess everybody must miss clubs, right? Because there's just not live music anymore the way there used to be, you know, in clubs. And there was, there's nothing like that feeling. And I played a lot of uh, art spaces afterwards, you know, after... Like, for I example, was, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Like, for example, what's an art space? Well, well, you know, I played at Track 16 Gallery, okay. you know. Back then I used to play at Lace or, you know, I played mm -hmm. clubs and then sometimes I played at an art space. And as the clubs were kind of folding or became it became more difficult for me to play clubs anyway because of my setup and so I would play in an art space where they'd let me have all day or maybe a week to set my shows up so that was easier but now I don't know where I, I'm not sure where I would perform I get asked to perform places but um, yeah I don't know I'm kind of old well, uh, no. aren't we all? Yeah. I mean, but you maybe Except if, if you're in a club and they sort of put the show around you, you know what I mean? So you're not just like 15 minutes set up, 15 minutes off oh with the mop, you know, to like clean up all the blood. I just wish that a, a filmmaker out there would do a whole documentary film on Johanna. I, I would buy it, that's for sure. I mean, the just her whole life story and um, footage of her performances... I just think it would be amazing. And for people who haven't, who don't know exactly what you're about, and it's, I can only say it's, it's a one of a kind thing. You're the only person who did what you did in the history of time that I'm aware of. So, where would people? You were just telling me there was some stuff on Vimeo that you can go see. Yes, there's. And quite how do you look it up? Oh. <laughs> no, I mean, I want well, people who are listening to this to kind of. I want it. I want them to see to, what it is. I have to uh, ask Mark Wheaton. Um, yeah, it's under my name, okay. and uh, Catasonic uh, Records is Mark Wheaton's, also his, uh, so you could look at Catasonic Records, or y you can look at Vimeo, and that's how you can see some of my shows. So Mark's still involved, and he's kind of, I guess for lack of a better word, curating your archives, so to speak. Yeah, he's still kind of like gets me, you know, excited about, you know, getting things out there. It's, uh, he definitely um, kind of prods me along, you know, because it's really easy for me to kind of let my life kind of go off in different directions, you know. Um, but he's still, he's still there, you know. He's still around and he's still doing stuff too, you know, and he still has his his uh, recording studio and he still records music and yeah cool uh, Stella you're the quiet voice in the corner uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask you because uh, I've, I've debated this with people and I'm not sure what the answer is but are you in fact the longest running DJ in Los Angeles is there anyone that's been on the air longer than you I think that Rodney was at K-Rock doing Rodney on the Rock for what 40 almost 41 years so I think he had the record. 
I'm at. I started this particular show. But you were on KXLU before you did Straight Yeah, Fight. yeah. So maybe I am. Because I ditched my orientation group for Loyola Marymount University. It was the summer of 77. I wandered into the radio station. And then I started getting involved there. So I guess if I check my FCC third class license for the date, I could tell you if it was 78 or maybe it was 77 when I started doing uh, radio on KXLU. You know, there was a process, of course, of, you know, paying your dues there. So I wasn't immediately on the air, but... I think Robert told me that, uh, Robert from Live Agent says that there's a fellow that does, I think, a, a weeknight classical music show. Nestor who might Who might uh, be there a little longer than you. Yeah. Maybe. No, you know, no Nestor definitely has been. Okay. They're longer than me. One thing I found interesting in the book, and I'm guessing this is no longer the truth if you're on KXLU, but you had to actually, you know, hardcore learn how the whole station ran before you were really, yeah. like, like how to boot up the station and turn it on in the morning. And well, you, you had to because if you did a, because uh, we weren't 24 hours. Um, you are now, right? Oh, yeah. We've yeah. been for a very long, long time. time. But... You know, the station would shut down at 2 and then start up again at 6 a.m. So, when you know, when, as you're working your way through the ranks, when you first started doing an FM show, you obviously were going to be given a shift, you know, at 6 a.m. And you had to know how to turn on the transmitter, which was a whole process of you know, pressing a set of buttons, waiting for the tubes to warm up. This is how far back this goes when things had tubes in them. Waiting about 20 minutes, I guess, and then hitting another bank of tubes. And then, you know, once it started firing up, you could read the sign on and start broadcasting. So you'd have to be there, I don't know, at least an hour early. And that was, all, that was a challenge because sometimes I'd be at the Starwood the night before till two or something. And then if I had to wake up at, what, four to, you know, get up and go drive to the station. I don't know how I did that, but when you're young. Yeah, you got all the energy in the world. <laughs> so. Well, also something I didn't realize, because, you know, I guess I've been here since 79, and I think of KXLU as like this free-form, you know, anything-goes station. But at the time when you were starting, uh, you were like the only one interested or willing to play punk rock and they finally gave you a specialty show to do that as opposed to that just sort of being the norm. Yeah, I was getting in trouble for the music I played. So, uh, you know, the program director at the time, he actually sometimes would play Journey. You know, KXLU was more of a progressive rock, you know, dinosaur rock radio station. So I was sticking out like a sore thumb and I got suspended a few times. And then finally, the Redneck program director said, here's a specialty show, play that crap, that new wave crap at night. And was it already a Friday late night? No, no, I started on a Tuesday night. Okay. So I never could go see Fear at the <laughs> Starwood because they played on Tuesdays. I'd have to, you know, I would go, Wednesdays. Um, I forget if I was with the time, if the shift, the shift was probably 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. Okay. All right. And then when did you move to Friday? I feel, I feel like you were always... You know, that's one thing I, I would have to look up. The only reason I know when I started the specialty shows because I marked it down in a date book and when 
Libby from the LA Weekly wrote an article about me, which has already been some time ago. I looked it up for her, but I would have to start digging through the punk rock gray gardens to uh, see when that happened. Maybe I noted it in a date book, but then I'd have to go through all the date books to see when I stopped marking Tuesdays off and I started marking off Fridays. But, you know, the Friday shift, you know, has changed. I think first it might have been midnight to three. Now it's 11 to 3. So, or maybe it was 11 to 2. I don't know. I should. Can I have an intern? Yeah, you need an intern at this point. Someone can, they, some can that be their, like, thesis or something for school? I don't know. I have need you ever help. had an intern? No, I do everything myself. As, you know, Stacy just I... did my radio show two nights ago and she saw it in action, <laughs> me all hauling up all this stuff with me. Up the elevators from the from yeah, that, like, from that far parking lot. It's yeah, a lot. all the CDs, which are in insulated lunch sacks. I figured out one day that these rectangular insulated lunch sacks were the perfect size for... CDs. I was looking at a Charlie the Tuna lunch bag I got by mailing it, you know, and I got a plushie. And I looked at that and I kept looking back and forth. And my spatial visual sense is very poor. I'm very auditory, obviously. And I thought, could that be the right size for CDs? And sure enough, so I've glommed onto that. So I carry 10 of those, you know, in my hands up there. And then I have um, a backpack with vinyl and more CDs. You need a little cart. Uh, you know what? I'm such a creature of habit. All right. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. I'll consult with the chiropractor. But I, I do everything. I engineer it myself. So if Stacy was watching me trying to interview her while I kept pulling apart the tone arm on the turntable <laughs> because the DJ before me bought his own, brought his own cartridge, and obviously when he put the KXLU cartridges back on. I was missing a channel on one of the turntables, which was infuriating me. Yeah, that And so that. sometimes, you know, I'm juggling a lot of stuff. Like some people complain, well, you don't answer the phone while you're there. And it's like, well, sometimes I think I'm a little busy. Yeah, it's a lot. People don't realize. Right. Well, yeah. One thing I was thinking when I read the book, um, in between some of the different women, uh, there, there sort of was a back and forth on how included they felt in the in the scene. Like a lot of women said, you know, it was a, it was a place where I could come and really be involved, and I was a part of it. And it didn't matter that it was it was no big women men type thing. But then it seemed like some of the younger people uh, who maybe got on board more during like the hardcore years that wasn't as true. Did you do you feel that was something that was going on? Um. Many of the women did comment that once hardcore became a big part of the scene, they didn't feel that they could be as involved. But I wouldn't say that was the case for all the women. Um, that's an important question, though. So one thing about doing the interviews, I wanted to make sure that I didn't ask leading questions as much as possible. Um, so I asked the women if they felt like you know they were welcome and you know, their involvement in the scene. And for the most part, they they felt absolutely they could do whatever they wanted. Um, there were no restrictions um, for gender reasons. I think some of the comments you're getting at were more about the violence that became present at some of the clubs, you know, later in the 80s. I think that caused some issues. But um, 
A lot of that is um, where I grew up, though, because <laughs> you know where you I grew up. Well, I grew up in Fullerton. Okay. Um, She's well, I, I was. HB. Yeah. No, 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 right. no, no. no. <laughs> I, I mean, I wasn't born in California, but I, I, my dad was transferred to Los Angeles for work right after fifth grade, and we moved to Fullerton. Um, so I went to places like Fenders and Long Beach, which that was a rough um, place. Was a rough place, but. So there was that element there, you know, there there was definitely violence there. I mean, um, sometimes the violence, though, was um, the police, to be honest. I think they um, may have caused some of the violence, their presence at times. But there was also definitely um, gangs that, that started to um, be part of it. And, you know, things like that were happening. But... At the same time that that was happening, I did a fanzine with my friends, and I was at all the shows and had a great time. So I I didn't feel like it prevented me from participation, you okay. know? No, and I, I actually, I mean, I was trashed a lot, to be honest with you, but I had a great time. Well, that's part of it. <laughs> You, you yeah. gotta, you gotta get into the into the vibe. <laughs> so you got, did you consider yourself a punk rocker? Um, I have a, I mean, I'm almost 50 now, and um, there's a lot of things that have influenced me up to this point, but I, I feel like I have a punk rock spirit, and I don't know um, what I say, I'm a punk rocker. <laughs> I don't know if I'd still describe myself as a punk rocker, but um, I definitely ha um, have a punk rock spirit, and it's, um, my life would, I would not be who I am today. If it wasn't for the punk rock scene, I really believe that. Yeah, I, you know, I played in a lot of punk bands, but I played in all kinds of bands. So I just always considered myself a musician. I never really thought of myself as a punk rocker. Yeah. And I, I'm of a generation that when I was a child, my parents made me have like the closest to being bald of a haircut you could possibly have. <laughs> it was like, oh, so awful. And then so when punk rock came, last thing I wanted to do was cut my hair. It's like that's what I was escaping from. So. Uh, so like for me, a lot of times I'd go to like a hardcore show. I'd have to sort of like watch my ass so I didn't get yeah. beat up or whatever. <laughs> well, if you see the photo of me in the book, I, I had a mohawk for a while when I was a teenager. Where, I, where is your photo um, in the book? I was looking for that it's today. It's in the near the intro. It's in the intro. It's on page eleven. You can see me there. You remembered your page. Well, I just happened to open up to it, but <laughs> the book. Oh, there you are. <laughs> wow. All right. But um. So, so I also wonder why you didn't do a chapter on you. Just to kind of like yeah. tie the whole thing together. <laughs> I don't know. I guess. Um, I mean, I I, I could have, but I wrote a little bit about me in the introduction. You know, a little bit. But I really was um, doing this project to present these stories. You know. Um, but if you women have said that, you should have had your own chapter. But I don't know. I just. All right. I just You're modest. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. but. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. This is put out by uh, my publisher, and so a lot of people that are you know not necessarily punk rock involved, but just involved in writing and books. Uh, I always like to try to cover how did you turn this in you know to an actual published book, and did you have a deal before you started putting it together, or did you go to the publisher with a finished work? How did that work? Yeah, um, I just started the project, 
without, um, I mean, my plan from the very beginning was to have a book. So I was clear about that with everybody I interviewed. So they knew, you know, that I was intending to make this into a book. Um, as a writer, I know that it's really hard to get anything published. Um, and you get a lot of rejection. And so from the beginning, I thought if I can't find a publisher, I'll self-publish it. You know, I, at a certain point, after gathering all the stories, I, I couldn't let the stories go. I, I really wanted them to get out there. But what happened is, once I had, um, I would say over half of the manuscript done, and I had completed all the interviews, I was still just going through the transcription phase, which was That's the nightmare, lot. the nightmare part of the project. Yep. Um, I sent out a book proposal to many publishers. Um, gosh, I'm not sure how many now. I think um, maybe 15 initially, 10 to 15. And I received some positive feedback from some of them, but they weren't going to publish it. Um, but I was even happy that they took the time to send me positive feedback. Usually you just get a, a you know, a rejection. Form yeah, yeah, form letter. But um, this publisher, Santa Monica Press, um, when I sent the proposal, the publisher contacted me that same day and asked to see more. I was um, really happy about that. And so I, I sent him like 70 pages or something of the interviews. And in a very short time, he wanted to publish the book. And um, we talked a lot. And um, I had a lot of demands. <laughs> about what I wanted done. I didn't want it changed. And there were other things that I required because it's an oral history, so I didn't want things edited and, you know, things like that. I wanted the stories to appear as they as I turned them in. Right. Um so um so basically then I, I did sign with um Santa Monica Press and ev they have been awesome. Cool. They have been so supportive and great, and everything I asked, they did it, and I'm couldn't be happier in terms Good. of with the publisher. Was being uh, I hope this isn't a stupid question, but was being a librarian helpful in just sort of sorting out where to go in the publishing world? Well, um, this is my third book, so I oh I didn't know that yeah oh so I um when I was in library school. Some people don't know this, but librarians actually have master's degrees. Well, yeah. Stella knows that. I knew that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great, great. I, I, so, did, I did know uh, that as well. Okay. Oh, so everybody here knows that. So, because um, that's sometimes people are shocked. You know, they don't. It's a stereotype, I guess. Well, it's a I lot don't know. to. So you got to know a lot of stuff. Yeah. You, yeah, you do. <laughs> but um, when I was um, getting my degree, I actually took a class on publishing, and. Um, my first book came out of that class I took when I was a graduate student. So that kind of helped me to figure out how to write a book proposal and all of that. But I've been a writer for most of my life. So a lot of this stuff really comes down to um, grit, um, not being, <laughs> you know, being okay with rejection and being organized and moving forward, you know, and um, having a really solid proposal, you know. Oh, just because I didn't know, what are your other books? The first book is a book on libraries in California. So like I mentioned, it came out of um, graduate school. So I, I received a grant, and I was able to drive around California and visit libraries, and I wrote about them. 
as um, special places in their communities. And the second book is an edited book, and it's a collection of protest writings by a former professor of mine, June Jordan, who was a beautiful poet and activist, and I had her as a professor at UC Berkeley as an undergrad. So I compiled her writings into this volume. It's um, Life as Activism is the title. So the library you work for is a school library, right? Santa Ana College. So it's obviously college. busy because people need, still need busy. to go to the library if they're Very busy in place, school. yeah. All right, very good. It's like a train station in there. <laughs> okay. Um, Joanna, I'm going to shift gears. Okay. Uh, can you spill the beans on what your recipe for blood is? No. <laughs> I was. I mean, secret recipe. You always had. I always had. We always had to go to the store and it get the. It stains uh, your clothes. You know. Too. For, oh yeah, it's nasty stuff. We used to get it from uh, uh, the makeup shop. You know, back in the forty-five right. grave days. But right. that was you know pre-fad. When I read that you made your own stuff, that was very impressive I to me. I did. I did. Actually, probably the last couple shows that I did a few years, like which were quite a while ago, probably like seven years ago or something, I used um, stage blood that I bought because yeah my blood really is a prop was a problem to get out of anything and I've had so <laughs> many over the years I mean in the clubs people would just go ah forget it you know we don't care you know people would complain or something to the you know club owners and they would just go what are you you know what are you doing slumming you know what did you expect you came to the show what did you expect you got blood on you so what so Stage blood, though, is artificially sweetened, which Not, is a nice thing. Uh, that's they make yeah, it with carrot syrup. I know, but it's sticky, and then it you know gets on your. You have to, for me, it would have to throw props away and stuff. But I did always have to throw a lot of props away, you know, because of the other uh, liquids and. You know, so your various. blood wasn't biodegradable. My blood was pretty good. My blood was. I mean, no. It, I don't know if it was biodegradable. I think it was well, probably chemically, you know, dangerous. <laughs> but did you develop this, I guess, which is going I to remain secret I formula? Made it, I made it up myself. Okay, so you didn't have, you, this wasn't something you could, uh, you know, look up in a book or anything. Well, I She's learned, an artist. I learned to cook when I was really, really young, you yes. know, because my mom was always sick, so I'd stand on a chair and, and cook, you know, when I was just probably not even five. You know, my mom would tell me what to do and I'd get up on a chair and stir whatever it was I was cooking. I mean, simple things, you know. So, yeah, I, you know, I'm good at making up recipes. <laughs> uh, I have a, a memory of, because uh, we used to use the stage blood quite a bit, I had a, a paratroopers or a, I guess an army guy's a camouflage jumpsuit mm -hmm. and uh, I wore it at the anti-club and covered it in blood. <laughs> and then it was it was a mess, like you're saying, all sticky. So I went to the bathroom, took it off as a jumpsuit, and then had my regular clothes on, sort of rinsed it out in the sink. And Helen, who ran this awful club, the anti-club, came in and had a cow about it. Like that. <laughs> and I was like, you have vomit on the walls. This is a problem. Yeah. I mean, and she, I mean, she really had a fit. I think yeah. and that was a whole bad night. She punched Mary in the face. And oh. that, that was a oh, bit of it. I can't remember oh. what that was about. It was a terrible night. Wow. I don't like that. No, no one did. No one liked her. I no, miss, no one did. I miss then, Jack Marquette. Yeah. So much. And Jim Vantine. And Jim Vantine, yes. No one knows where Russell Jessam is. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. Well, some of these people, when they get off the grid, they do it for a reason and they stay off. 
Yeah. Because yeah. in this day and age, not to be, be able to find somebody is very yeah. strange. Yeah, it can happen. One other thing I want to ask is this sort of jumped out at me when I was reading your chapter, which I reread last night. Quote from Joanna Went. I really felt that whatever I did was a direct inspiration from the collective consciousness of my audience, my community, and my world. I love that. And again, please look up what Joanna did so you can yeah. visualize what we're talking <laughs> about here. Uh, how would you explain that? Uh, not that you didn't clearly already, but what does that mean? Like, were you electrically channeling what people were feeding to you as, as you were doing it? or You must have had it to some degree mapped out. You couldn't just go in as a blank slate and do that show. Well, I was already doing crazy work on the street or wherever, and the more I did things in places like that, I realized that there was a need, you know, for people to see what I was doing. I really believed that, but I hadn't quite hooked in with the audience until, like, the punk scene. When I went to, um, I actually was, I saw the first punk rockers I saw were in London, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm going, okay, okay. And then I didn't see a band, I didn't see them perform, but I saw them on the streets. Right. And I'm going, okay, okay. So I, I understood where that energy was coming. You know, I tuned in. And one of the things that I liked about Stacy when she first started talking to me was about um, the oral history thing, because I felt like that scene was so tribal. I felt like we were a tribe and we were dancing around the fire. We were making all these things happen and we were, you know, we were in tune with, you know, some kind of, we had some kind of cosmic connection. Not that I really, you know, believe that in cosmic, I don't know. But I felt like there was like this vibration of energy that would happen. I mean, look how people would just like show up at the shows. We didn't have cell phones or... No, know, of course. We couldn't text people or what, you know, but the, but it happened. You know, yeah, we did like put flyers everywhere. We would like go, you know, tell everybody or whatever, but I didn't even have an answering machine back then. You know, it was like, but you'd go to this place and they'd be like, whoa, it's crowded. <laughs> and everybody would be there. And then there was just this primal experience that everybody seemed to understand in a different way. Uh, yeah, I get, I get what you're saying, for sure. I mean, when, when I saw it live, I was, I was speechless. I mean... <laughs> I embarrassingly admit that when I met you backstage at a psychic TV show, I was like, I met David Bowie. And like, this is Joanna Wynn. I was like, you know, I was sort of like, spill. You know, I just saw the, you know, with the Robert De Niro head, you know, ripping with the boxing gloves. And I was like, and you know, there you are. It's like, ah, I was just completely blown away. It was just, because I mean, it's really one of the things that I've seen in my life that, I try to explain it to people, and you you just can't. It's just like, it's such a unique uh, individual vision that, and it's so high energy and brutal. It's not like, it's art, but it's not artsy. It's just like right in your face, and you gotta just, you gotta get on board or you're gonna get run over. <laughs> well, I've always been kind of a recluse, primarily because I wanted to, you know, protect that, you know, that persona. 
of people. You know, I, I like the idea that people were afraid of me. That's not really why I was a recluse. It was because I was working all the time, you know. I always had a couple of jobs, and then I had to build all those props, all those costumes, not to mention haul them here and there, you know, to show and, and then put them in, a, if I had a garage or someplace to keep them, you know, or, you know, digging through the trash for more things to make more and more and more and bigger props and better costumes and more in stirring up the blood in the pot and so uh we're gonna get to that eventually what the blood i gotta find out <laughs> well now you know there is a pot, a pot that is I cooked involved. It in. it's heated up it was heated up <laughs> all right yeah <laughs> you know ironically while i was waiting to, for johanna to come pick me up i when i was doing my hair one of these heavy duty metal barrettes i wear to clamp down my hair nicked my finger and I was bleeding. I thought this is so appropriate. I'm go. bleeding, waiting for Joanna went to pick me up. <laughs> you know, I think that someone should do like a taste test. Instead of Coke versus Pepsi, there should be Guar's blood versus your blood. Ah. See if people could tell the difference. All right. Do they make their own? They used to. But they well they they went fluid crazy. They had like what, six or seven different yeah. fluids per show? <laughs> I did too. Oh yeah, that's what I was gonna say. All right. <laughs> well, I was just big on cream corn, but I would <laughs> but I would try to disguise it. Like cream corn is just good, you know? All right. And then I would cook green oatmeal and then I would have blue spaghetti. And then sometimes I would use things like actual fuzz in a hurry spaghettios which then I would mix like maybe some blood and then and sometimes I would even put string or yarn inside of it you know <laughs> to give it that whatever and then I really did get into using like sausage casings you know from <laughs> pig guts you know so then I would stuff it into the green oatmeal into the sausage casings and then I would tie it up on these things and then I'd have to go down to the market the Grand Central Market which they've completely ruined. Like you can't go there and get like seven pounds of cow lips anymore. Mm. Are you sure? Yeah. Uh, well, I, an odd thing that happened when I was working at the Knitting Factory, we had a band called Wotane. Ever Anyone ever heard of them? Mm -mm. They're like, uh, I wanna say they're German, I'm not positive, but somewhere in Europe, Eastern Europe or Germany. Satanists, they claim. So a friend of mine from Finland that I work with a lot was in town. You want to go to the club? And he goes, oh, yeah, Watane's playing. Let's go. That'll be fun. So we go down there, and because I worked there, we entered through the back. I didn't have to go through the front and all that stuff. So we walked into the backstage first, and the second we crossed in, it was like, oh, my God, what is that? It was like this foul, like really foul smell, and it was strong. Well, what the hell is that? So somehow... They had gotten to town and someone had hooked them up and they'd gone to some place in East LA or something and gotten eight uh, goat heads. Oh yeah. Fresh I, goat heads. I used those. And they were all along the front of the stage. And, and like I said to the night manager, you let them put goat heads? I mean, what if the, you know, because we always had the guys from, you know, the check your restaurant grade and all that stuff popping in. I oh, go, that's they're, right. They're yeah. not gonna like eight goat heads on the stage, you know, just from, but yeah, they went somewhere and. Uh, you know, downtown and you can get you could get back plan. then you can always get This wasn't that heads. back then. This was like ten years ago. This was like not you that unreasonable. You know, right. I mean goats yeah, you can still get goat a taco. A guy'd like goat taco right now. A goat taco? <laughs> sure. But they don't put the head in it. No. The head is just trash. No, but you know in Ice like in Iceland they eat the goat heads. 
you know, you can go, you can go to a drive-in like a not. It's it's not McDonald's. No, of course it's not. It's like McGoathead. McGoathead. <laughs> you I like get that. the goathead, <laughs> then you like, and then it's barbecued, or and then you open it up and eat it. You oh, know? you have a vegan here, so to <laughs> me, I'm like, no thanks. <laughs> it, it was definitely gnarly. That's for sure. Um. I love start? goats, you know. <laughs> I do love goats, and I don't murder them or anything. Well, but there were goats available back then. You ever had a goat pet? No, but I think about it sometimes. They're not very friendly. Oh no, uh, I've no. known people that have had goats, and there's maybe some in of Ventura them are you could have an ocean goat. You know, there's an a picture goat. right over there, but that behind that screen of Elsa with a goat, and uh, it's biting her leather jacket and trying to. Well, they like to eat it. things. Yes, yeah. they, yes, they do. That's yeah. kind of part of the game. <laughs> Um, are you guys keeping up with uh, music nowadays? And I know you are, obviously, you're on radio, but you guys have any stuff that you feel sort of has the spirit of what was happening when you guys got on board that's still going or anything you're following? Um, I can't really say there's anything happening right now that um, I listen to very much, you know? I. I still listen to older music, <laughs> I guess. I mean, you is know, that like, is that typical of anyone that gets to be our age if they make I, it? That you I don't know. Sort of cut I mean, off at a certain point? I wondered about no. this. I um, at least things that are played on the radio now, you know, the more mainstream music. I think it's really awful. But then I thought, wait a minute! I thought that was awful my whole life, <laughs> you know, yeah, like. It's so, always um, been, if you look at what wins the Grammys, that's always stuff you would yeah, basically never listen yeah. to. So I I listen mostly to music from, you know, like the 70s and the, kind of that period, but I'm open to listening to anything. I just, I don't know, Stella might have different opinion about that. I don't know, about oh. some contemporary music. Yeah, there's, there's stuff out there. Yeah. It, there isn't like a... Uh, this big cohesive scene the, the way there used to be where there would be all these different kinds of things going on where bef you know now everything is so you know fractioned off yeah it's more segregated you, before you know like you could, could see a rockabilly band with a punk band exactly. or Johanna would be right. performing or you know or Zachary would be playing Cole Porter tunes somewhere and everyone was just all thrown together and people just went to all these, you know, you could go to the same club and you could see all these different kinds of things. So now it's is more segregated out. I was telling Stella about a lot of the young students at the college. They, they have the Dead Kennedys t-shirts and the Black Flag t-shirts and, you know, all these bands and... Um, they're, but they are, um, you know, they're 19 years old now, well, you know, 20. The, and sometimes the t-shirt outsells the record. Well, you know what, um, the thing about these students, though, because I talked to them about it, they love the music. And, but the world's so different now. But I, I don't know if there's been any other sort of large cultural artistic movement since then. And I think um, for young people that might be why they kind of gravitate to that because it does have all these aspects to it right it has the art and the music and just the whole energy of it and the creativity and it's this whole movement 
So I don't know if there's anything really like that that's happened since punk rock. Well, it's funny. I, someone pointed out to me, I think it was Henry Rollins said, you know, talking about Trump times, like, you know, Joe Strummer prepared you for this. Are you guys ready? <laughs> you know, and so you would think, you know, back in the Reagan days, punk rock really got, you know, a second wind. But I don't feel that happening now. Like, is everyone just like, oh, well, you know, we'll roll with it. You know, I, I don't know. It just seems like if if ever there was a time to be young and angry, you know, welcome to 2017. Well, they're more effectively distracted. And mm -hmm. I, you know, since my son is now 24, I've seen it where uh, generations now have been just dictated to and overly regulated from a very young age. Where You, you mean parentally? Uh, and just the institutions. School does it, so school might get on a parent's back. You know, like you're letting your kid walk to school by yourself. They'll call, like, you know, Department of Children's Services on you. So they don't have a lot of free reign and license. And I also see that a lot of them are so, you know, absorbed by their social media or gaming or, you know, their, uh, I forget what they call it particularly. There's like role playing stuff they'll do live. They interact with one another. Mm -hmm. And so that's really like their touchstone. And but then there are, you know, or some kids like, you know, I don't understand the whole thing where people lining up the night before in front of a sneaker store. I know that it's this whole, you know, a lot of them are turning it around to make good profit on it. But, you know, that's a very materialistic thing. Yeah, but it's also part of it's it's an interesting thing the way it's kind of changed, you know, the fashion industry in a very interesting way and a lot of times some of the you know some of the guys they like support their friends and they use you know they buy their things and then they also what the other thing that the stores do sometimes is they sponsor somebody you know my I have nephews from uh, my great nephews actually from Tacoma Washington scene and then I have like Ugly Frank, who's my not actually my nephew, but we I call him he calls me Andy J, and he's like my nephew. And uh, Ugly Frank uh, is from a band called I'll Fight You, but now he's doing stuff on his own of of uh, you know Ugly Frank. And they had uh, they came from like a whole. It was very much a very kind of tribe of youngsters of young kids who started doing this and now they're in their 20s you know and my other nephews are the peasant boys and they're twins um there's but i can tell like ugly frank gets you know sometimes the store will sponsor him or something and so sometimes they'll have shows that way because there's not a lot of clubs you know, that are booking anybody or paying people. There's not a lot anymore. So the other thing, then they do like house shows and then, you know, they'll, yeah, they'll play at a store or something. Yeah, see, that's they'll, a different culture. Where I'm, I'm just like, you know, I admit it, I'm a punk rock geezer, get off my lawn. I know I'm old. I know I'm going to be cranky, and I know I'm not going to relate love these, to everything. You'd love these guys. Well, I mean, I've met a just, Ugly yeah, Frank, met but, Ugly I, Frank. I, but I didn't go see him dude, when he performed at Supreme or wherever right, he was right, performing. Right, right. Like, I have knowledge of this stuff, so, you know, maybe I shouldn't say sneaker store, but... Or recently... No, I get it. It's a different thing. Yeah, no, it is a different thing. Like, I saw the Ghostbusters mobile parked on Melrose, so, you know, I pulled around, you know, because me and vehicles... 
I went to go look at it, and it was in conjunction with the release of a shoe um, associated with Stranger Things, you know, because one of the characters on the show is obsessed with Ghostbusters. So the, the car was there as a tie-in for the party at the store for the launch of this, you know, Stranger Things, you know, Ghostbusters, you know, shoe. Like, you know, the the strange, tired-looking woman in a moo-moo, you know, was there, had no interest in going into the party, which was obviously the big, huge draw with the guy with the clipboard at the door, you know, you had to be on the list. But, you know, I understand it's out there, but I don't particularly, but, uh, but I'll say I don't relate to it. But then with this particular thing, you can't, you know, you have to get a manufacturer. Do, do the people start just drawing on sneakers with El Marcos or, or something? You know, back in the well, day, see, there I wasn't mean, punk rock shirts. I mean, that's, people had to make their own. Well, so that's, it's different, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I know. I mean, that is the thing that I wonder about, too. And even my, even my nephew, Josh, who's staying at my house right now, he was going like, oh, yeah, all these people are, like, in line at these sneaker, sneaker stores, and they're all going to buy the same you know, they're all going to buy the same shirt or the same sneaker or the same whatever. And, yeah, it, you know, he can't afford that. He's not going to do it. Unless somebody give them free clothes, they wouldn't wear the clothes. Yeah, it's... I just I just feel for young kids now because yes, but it's everything's merchandising, expensive. But merchandising <laughs> also is another way, you know, like, they don't... It's like you don't get signed... You, you have to figure out a way to do merchandising. Well, someone said on the show, actually, uh, you used to uh, make t-shirts to sell records. Now you make records to sell t-shirts. Punk rock merchandising is uh, very profitable. It's very lucrative. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and thank, thank the kids that come to the show and, and, you know, support bands by, you know, getting them to the next gig by buying a few things. Greg Ginn works. would never have to work another day in his life just off of t-shirt sales because all those records on SST, they're all t-shirts, and he owns the rights to them. Greg was a, uh, Greg was a smart boy. Uh, <laughs> Greg's got his reputation. Yes, of course. Raymond Pettibone does not own the rights to that. We don't want to get into the brother argument. <laughs> Intellectual property. Yeah. Who signed what? So what, <laughs> do you, what are you playing that's new? You know, I'm the worst person to ask with my memory. No, I hear memory. new stuff on your... On your yeah, no, or you just I, don't I remember do. what it is. Yeah, that's why I would, you know, look at a playlist. But, you know, there are, you know, bands out there. I got the new Dick and Jane Orchestra CD. and that, But that's more of a, you know, punk rock geezer thing. A lot of the topics are singing about, about memory and <laughs> things like that. You know, it's it's witty, but... Who else? Who's, you know, Cliff and Ivy, Alaska's only goth band. And... I mean, I like a lot of the sort of so-called garage rock, even though I don't think it really is garage rock, but like the OCs, Ty Siegel, a lot of those guys. I think that's kind of punk rock adjacent in just that Yeah, I play a lot of, and, uh, well, actually, old garage stuff. You know, punk is an attitude. For me, you know, I always had long hair through punk rock, and... Penelope Spheris, when she came up to my show to promote Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, The Metal Years, she's the one that pointed it out to me. You know, even during punk rock, your hair was really long. It's not like you grew it long because you're senior editor at Rip Magazine now. And I said, well, my dad was a barber. 
he, that was my rebellion. He liked short hair on everything. He would have loved shaving my head a few times a week into strange hairdos. <laughs> so for I think punk was that's my identity is punk when you're asking about that. You know, earlier it's it's a part of me. It's an attitude. So no matter how I look like or what I'm doing, that uh, is an underpinning to how I approach everything, whether it's apparent or not. Well, I think that is also part of the thing with the hardcore years is that up then until it, then... That changed, right? Yeah, because before you that... You had a uniform and a, and a before rule Before that, it was all about self-expression, you know, like whoever... Because there were plenty of people that didn't dress like punk rockers. I mean, if you think about the early punk scene in any of the big cities, yeah, the bands aren't similar. Everybody's doing something weird and different. It's just not commercial rock, and they're like off off the grid and just trying to be their, themselves. It wasn't really till like punk rock and you know the more hardcore stuff came along. SST really, where it was like, okay, now this is it. You look like this. Your hair's like that. You play at this tempo, and and that's what it is. And I, I think that there a lot of music moving forward from that was like that. I go, let's figure out this zone and like goth, death rock, all that stuff had sort of like a little parameter, and if you ventured too far outside of it, then you weren't that anymore. So if you wanted to be part of a scene, you did have a few stipulations you kind of had to, you know, follow. Well, human nature is what it is. My mother used to complain when I was young, this is obviously before punk rock, how everyone had the, just the long straight hair parted down the middle. When I was in high school, yeah, you know, it's every, just girl, like, every girl, every yeah. girl. Well, and most people tend to be conformist. It's just human nature. And then there are a few of us who go against it. Yeah. You know, and everyone in your book pretty much said that they felt that they didn't fit in. Yeah. Um, one of the questions that I think about a lot is, were the women different already? Or <laughs> was it because of you know punk rock you know and I and it's I it's really a gateway you go oh here's something here's something I can do and I can fit in but and I, I feel that most of them did feel like they already were an outcast or somewhat of a misfit they didn't really feel like they fit in anywhere and so then they had this community of misfits they they could belong to yeah, of you know so. Um, you could still kind of do your own thing, but you were accepted, even if you were odd, because everybody was odd. So I think that for the women, it kind of showed them that you can live your life how you want to. You know, you don't have to maybe be a traditional woman, you know, in this world. You can, you're fine with um, whatever ideas you have, how you want to look, you know. Um, you didn't have to fit into a certain gender role, but I think they that they were already different because if you think about going into some of those clubs, most people, not even just women, but I think most people in general would probably run the other way, right? But there's a certain group of people that run right into it. I want to check like, it I out. want to go right in there and yeah, see what's going it was on. So inspiring <laughs> that right, right. all of a sudden have like a lot of women out yeah. there doing music and singing and on the stage. Yeah, it wasn't like that before. Yeah. Well, ladies, I'm going to cut it there. We're just about at the hour point, and uh, thank you. Once it goes over 60 minutes. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. Are oh, you very welcome? This was a blast. Uh, I hope everyone enjoys it, and uh, we will see you next time. Say bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the Tone Deaf Sessions. 
We're taking a break until 2018. In the meantime, please visit all 27 of our podcasts. Just go to Bruce Duff on Instagram and in the bio link tree, you'll find a link to all of them. Until next year, have a lovely holiday season.